Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about Lebanon. The country is almost two years into an economic crisis that the World Bank says could be one of the worst anywhere for more than 150 years. Lebanon is falling apart. Tragedy is unfolding in Lebanon. Inflation has driven the country's currency to historical lows. The crash highlights a grave economic crisis that has left half the population living below the poverty. From Lebanon, the capital, Beirut, has been hit by a massive explosion. Dozens of people are said to be injured and there are some reports of people trapped. Since late 2019, the Lebanese lira has lost more than 90% of its value, causing massive inflation. Many businesses have lost access to credit. Unemployment has skyrocketed. More than three quarters of Lebanese now live in poverty. The toll on the state has been heavy. Lebanese state institutions are floundering with budgets gutted and employees underpaid. The security forces are stretched even thinner, policing unrest. The lack of progress in investigating an enormous blast in Beirut's port about a year ago, which killed more than 200 people and left much of the city devastated, has made people angrier still. Despite the scale of the crisis, Lebanese elites have generally played for time rather than enacting necessary reforms. Lebanon looks like being on track towards forming a new government. This after the businessman and twice before Prime Minister Najib Mikati won enough votes in parliamentary consultations earlier today to be nominated as the Prime Minister-designate. Hezbollah supporters cheer and chant as their leader Hassan Nasrallah takes matters into his own hands, announcing that an Iranian fuel tanker would sail towards Lebanon and warning Iran's foes not to intervene. The Beirut explosion that Naz mentioned, involving more than 2,500 tonnes of ammonium nitrate that had been stored unsafely for years, that forced the government at the time to resign. After a year of political wrangling, a new government is finally in place. But it largely comprises the same old faces, the same political elite who bear much of the responsibility for the crisis in the first place. 
Today we're welcoming on Heiko Women, who's director of crisis groups Lebanon, Syria and Iraq project. Heiko is usually based in Beirut. We're going to talk about the crisis itself. We're also going to talk about what it's done to the country's politics and society. And we're going to talk about how Hezbollah, the political party and militant group designated by the US and Europe as a terrorist organization, we're going to look at how Hezbollah has fared. Heiko, welcome on. Hi, Richard. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So, Heiko, why don't we start by asking you to say a word or two about what the economic crisis actually entails? I mean, what what has it involved? Well, it. I mean, you already mentioned the uh, collapse of the currency, right? And that, of course, uh, means that people have lost their income. It means people have lost their livelihood. It means that for businesses, uh, importing and exporting has become a major challenge because uh, not only has the currency collapsed, but the banks are uh, insolvent. So uh, the companies have their operational capital trapped, as uh, you have said, uh, but they also cannot transfer money easily uh, between Lebanon and, and other countries. So that means you can't import raw material easily, which means you can't produce it really affects all part of uh, society. It, it affects uh, all institutions because um, the liquidity crisis has by now caused an, an, a severe energy shortage. Um, you have um, electricity cuts that are 22 hours per day, right? So having electricity is the exception. Not the rule. You have general outage that's uh, that's um, interrupted by a bit of electricity, and under these conditions, uh, of course, the economy can only get worse, and we have a, a really a downward spiral that that sees big parts of society uh, fall into poverty. And Heiko, what does this look like for Lebanese families? So, I mean, imagine, for instance, uh, you have an, an elderly parent or relative, right, who needs uh, medical care you know, or any person who needs medical care and um, you will struggle to find the medication because medication is simply not available, uh, much of it. Uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the pharmacies, you won't find cancer medication. A friend of mine, her aunt just recently, uh, her uh, cancer that was in remission uh, apparently came back and they're, they're scrambling to get the medication for, the, for a new round of chemo, which is simply not there. So, so that's one part of it. I mean, that uh, there was a, a moment when the American University Hospital, which is one of the finest medical institutions in the country, uh, said, okay, if we don't get diesel within 48 hours, all patients in the intensive, in the ICU ward will die, right? Because the machines will stop. And you can also hear stories of, of you know, not just, obviously, fuel prices being hiked and there being massive queues outside gas stations, but also simply people being unable to afford uh, food in, in, in the way that they used to simply because the, of inflation, that the money they have simply dad doesn't add up to buying basic groceries anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... Uh so, I mean, we keep seeing these figures, um, inflation on basic food items within one year, 400%, I think was the latest for August, maybe, that I remember. And um, it's as simple as that. The uh, 750,000 lira was the minimum wage in uh, 2019, and it still is. You know, And everybody who earns in lira, works for the public sector, still has that, that kind of income. It hasn't, they're, they're 
given them a few extras here and there, but it's, it, it's amounts to nothing, you know? And, and meanwhile, like everything has become 10 times more expensive. It's as simple as that. So by now, the minimum wage that you have, uh, that the, the, these 750,000 liras, they fill up a car once. You know, that's what a minimum wage does. It fill up a car once, 750,000. They give you, um, if you have, like, to have very basic electricity, uh, pay for a generator that you could, that you have maybe 10 hours electricity on a very low level per day. You pay twice the minimum wage, you know. So how are you going to pay for food? So in the end, it, it really goes down to, uh, to, to the very basic, you know, people like, the army already uh, a year ago cut meat from the from the diet of its of its soldiers. You know? So that tells you how uh, how far to the to the bottom to the to the basic it really is. And Heiko, how has uh, how has the COVID nineteen pandemic played into this? Well, COVID nineteen obviously had made things much worse. It it has meant that several times the, the country went into into lockdown. Uh, businesses that were already uh, hit were hit more. That has pushed unemployment, and and we've seen in uh, in the beginning of this year uh, massive riots in in the north, in Tripoli, uh, because of COVID uh, shutdown measures that that put people who were like daily workers who really uh, live hand to mouth, uh, literally who depend on earning a daily pay and couldn't find it anymore because everything was locked down. These people were rioting, and and you got an idea how quickly things could really go over the edge. So, Heiko, just so our listeners understand, could you sort of explain what actually caused the economic crisis? Yeah. So to to, to break it down very uh, roughly and to a simple explanation, uh, Lebanon has, um, for the past 30 years, um, consumed massively more than it uh, produced. And that means, of course, imports. Uh, and imports far outstripping exports. That means you have dollars flowing out of the country and you don't have enough dollars flowing into the country, right? And at some point, you will have a, a dollar scarcity, and this has to stop because people simply don't have any dollars left to uh, to, to pay for the imported goods, and Lebanese lira are not accepted outside the country as a convertible currency. Now, what the Lebanese did over these 30 years, um, to one ex- some extent, they relied on remittances from the diaspora. I mean, that's fine. You know, you can do that potentially forever, as long as the diaspora sends this money. And the other uh, the, and the other part of the gap, and that was a, a, a significant part of it, they um, attracted uh, foreign money. They attracted foreign direct investment in the form, to a large extent, in the form of bank deposits. And, and then the Lebanese Central Bank would use that money, essentially, to fund this consumption, to plug that gaping hole between what the country produced and what it actually consumes. You know? And that went on for quite a while. And then some of these foreign funds uh, dropped, uh, dried up to some extent because, they, um, because the diaspora wouldn't send back as, money, as much money as they used to. And to the other extent, because international rating agencies started highlighting that this was not sustainable. So Lebanon started to slide in the in the um, in the um, in in these evaluations. And then the central bank went and started taking money from the Lebanese. So Lebanese traditionally had a lot of their savings in dollars. 
that historical experience that uh, you know that if you have dollars you're fine if you have liras you may wake up and they're gone so people had dollars and they put those dollars in the banks and the central bank started hoovering up these dollars basically telling the commercial banks give us your dollars we pay you a wonderful high interest you know and they they tell that to foreigners too and 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 it kept going on and going on and it's and the, the interest had to get higher and higher and you were essentially paying the old creditor with the money of the new creditor. So it was a Ponzi scheme, essentially. It was a Ponzi scheme where you had to bring in new fresh dollars all the time and uh, to, to keep the music going. And then at some point, it was just the music stopped. The, the, the credibility was gone. And then people started going to the banks and said, oh, I want my dollars, but the dollars are not there. Nico, can I ask you, for those who may have followed the story of other currency failures or even massive economic crises like the one in Greece, what about this is different? What makes it so extreme? So um, you could say, for instance, Greece in the end had the euro and the EU and the European Central Bank to uh, to save it somehow, right? Um you could say that Venezuela, of course, is in the pits, but uh, Venezuela at least has oil. So in the end, they still have something to sell that, uh, that brings in some money. And um, these are just two examples. Uh, Lebanon, they simply don't have any of these uh, things that they could fall back on. There's nobody to bail them out. There are no resources that can be sold off to, uh, to generate cash to keep things somehow afloat. And they're really just utterly bankrupt. I saw some estimates that say uh, um, the, the banking crisis alone um, may cost between 25 billion and 125 billion. Uh, that's a standard and poor study. And, and the scope, I mean, the, the margin between the lower and the upper estimate already tells you it's so enormous that you don't even know how much there really is. You know, how deep you don't, the hole is so deep you don't even see the ground. And Heiko, so we have this report that you worked on that's going to be coming out in a, in a couple of weeks that looks at the sort of political and social implications of this terrible economic crisis. And in it, you talk about the increasing insecurity. Can you say a word or two about sort of what that looks like? So some of it is actually uh, too clear to see and you can spot it. And you see it in uh, insecurity incidents um, when the fuel crisis was especially bad, we had almost daily uh, news about um, fights breaking out with people like from this village wanting to fill gas and that in the other village and the other village wouldn't let them. So this is our benzene. Uh, go fill where you are and all of this, you know. And then people would, guns would come out, you know. And then, and then in some peripheral areas, um, they were fight, there was fighting over firewood. You know, people are gathering firewood for the winter because they know they will not be able to afford a heating oil anymore. So then two villages started fighting over, over logging rights uh, in, a, in an area, and, and they come out with uh, uh, medium-sized weapons like rocket-propelled grenades and, and, and stuff like that. So, so this is dramatic, and you see it. Um, what is less visible is, is, is the general deterioration of, of uh, security that... So, so like uh, a young woman that uh, my colleague interviewed um, told him like how she goes to the streets and she sees this young man 
sitting around and taking care of security, right? And, and watching security in the area because there have been theft, you know. Theft has been going up. Nobody does anything about it. Uh, the, it becomes more, more, more bold. And then she, said, she tell, told me, look, uh, as a young woman, you know, I need somebody to keep the streets safe. These guys are doing it. And, and she, she didn't like that. She didn't like this idea. But this is how, let's say, people who, who don't take their personal security necessarily for granted, for whatever reason, gender in this case, um, how these people uh, experience that. I think they are the best barometer for it. And, and you see that everywhere. If you look closer, you see it everywhere and you hear it from people who, uh, who know people in the security services. If there's any, if they're called to, uh, to, there's something going on, there's some, violence here or there. In, in many cases, the, the police wouldn't go anymore. You know? I mean, why would they? They're getting paid $50 a month. You know? Who would put himself in harm's way for $50? You know? I mean, you can, you can have security forces go that way for maybe a month or two or three, but now it has been going on. They have been in this situation for more than a year, and at some point, they reach breaking point, and I think many are probably past the breaking point already. So we describe in the report how much the economic crisis has eaten into Lebanese institutions, partly because there's no money in the budget, partly because uh, civil servants, whether they're teachers, people working in hospitals or, or people in the security forces, the real value of their salary has gone down so much, as you say. But how in particular has the economic crisis and this increased insecurity, how has that impacted the Lebanese security forces? So the security forces uh, have been doing more and more with less and less. And we've already said that their salaries have um, collapsed along with everybody else's. And of course, nobody can survive that way. So uh, so what they do, uh, what the army uh, apparently is doing, according to reports, it's, um, it's a bit difficult because this is very sensitive. Uh, whatever you say about the army um, it often causes reactions. So reporting about it is very... Um, muted. But um, from what I heard is that uh, the army is actually organizing in many cases, or maybe superiors are just organizing um, schedules in, in a way that soldiers can have a second job, right? So soldiers are moonlighting, essentially. And the army is, is uh, facilitating it or looking the other way. It is technically illegal. Uh, but the alternative is that these people are going to desert. So you now have soldiers that are actually working a part-time job. At the same time, the army has taken on more and more responsibilities and has more and more replaced the state uh, in, in areas where it's really uh, has no business of doing that or where it shouldn't do that, you know, um, simply because it's somebody else's job or they're just can't do all these things at the same time. They have led the response to the um, port explosion. That has the army, the disaster response, the army has almost almost completely uh, did that. Uh, they have played a huge role in the COVID response uh, to basically uh, enforce the, the, the lockdowns and everything. I mean, they sent everywhere where there are riots or problems. Now with the fuel crisis, the army would go around um, uh, uh, gas stations to... to prevents people or rather traders from hoarding benzene you know and and as a result uh, last month there was an incident where, where something like um, I think a dozen soldiers died in an explosion of, of fuel that they had um, 
found, hoarded in some place, and then handled in an unsafe way, exploded. Uh, these, these soldiers died in, in the most gruesome ways you can imagine. You know, so I mean, so basically, the army is worn down that way, and sooner or later, the army will also reach breaking point, and that then means that, like the police uh, now, according if I, from what people tell me. Um, who know people in, in the police forces, the army may uh, more and more simply not show up uh, when it should or when it would be needed. You know, to and and people will have to organize the, their security locally themselves. So you have uh, basically the state um, retreating from the responsible of maintaining security. And then one, once the army is no longer capable, then you will have other actors doing it, filling the void. And Heiko, can you tell us a bit more about these other actors as both the army and the police and security forces are under the kind of strain that you're describing? Who is coming in to fill the void? Now, mostly still informal uh, forms of private security provision. You know? These guys that sit on the corner right, and, and watch out what's happening at night in the neighborhood. Uh, at some point, they will have to be paid. At some point, they will have to be organized. And, and then, when that is the case, um, political parties, um, I think, at least some of them, uh, will be uh, best positioned to actually do that organizing. Because they have the organizational structure already, right? And they have networks. And some of them uh, do have residual, uh, um, you may call it, militia capacity. And then other parties, and of course, Hezbollah is, is the one that we all have in mind, uh, have actually a fully-fledged army at their disposal. Hezbollah uh, has its own police forces, for instance. For instance, so uh, they'll be able, um, with, their, with, with, with what they can do, to control their areas uh, pretty firmly and keep them safe, I believe. And I think the situation will also be okay in areas that are, that are affluent, you know, that can where people can afford to have a private security force that acts more or less professionally, that are maybe soldiers or policemen who are moonlighting, right? But there are other areas where, where you have uh, neither the money uh, nor the political uh, um, structures to do this, you know? And that's, that's where things are problematic. There's a place like Tripoli in the north where, where you, have, you will have these rackets or you already have them. And then you'll, you'll see that these rackets come to blows, you know, who controls which neighborhood, who taxes which neighborhood. So, Heiko, Lebanon is still sort of haunted by a 15-year civil war that ended in 1990, and it was a war that was fought along sectarian lines. So the, the insecurity and the, and the violence you're describing, is that playing out mostly along sectarian lines? I mean, is that, is that worsening Lebanon-sectarian relations, or is it more complicated than that? So it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly worsening the, the relations, the sectarian relations or community relations. Um, and, and in particular, since uh, there is a certain part of the Lebanese population that is explicitly uh, blaming Hezbollah for the crisis, right? And they basically say, you know, that um, it's, bec- it's all because of them, you know, it's because of them that we are a pariah state. It, uh, uh, it's because of them that our economy collapsed. It's because of them that nobody can or want to do business anymore. And... Uh, I would say that is inaccurate. Um, the, the financial crisis uh, was not caused by Hezbollah, but it, it is a sentiment that, that many people have and that uh, poisons, uh, of 
close relations between the communities because of course the supporters of Hezbollah respond in kind you know they they have their um, they uh, they throw the blame back at the, at the US who are like supposedly besieging uh, Lebanon and then they accuse their opponents of being uh, collaborators so that's on the level of the political debate um now uh, on on the on the grassroots level if you want um so if you have shortage of resources then you have of course resource competition right and and that and that uh, that shortage um, or these competitions then quickly can become uh, violent competitions sometimes um, along sectarian lines you know and we we've seen that uh, last month uh, when there was um, an incident that incident of um, christian village that ref- where the gas stations refused to sell uh, gas to uh, to people from a muslim village uh, down the road and then uh, as a result uh, there was an attack uh, from from the muslim village on the christian village you know and it's not the attack was not smashing uh, the gas station i mean they smashed other things too but they also smashed shrines right they sh- smashed shrines they walked to the town and shouting sectarian slogans you know and and you very uh, they sh- they shut down the road to that village so with the villages and christian villages sitting in the middle of a of a Shia area, and then these little incidents very quickly tap back into into a memory of of sectarian conflict, and it awakens like fears that are dormant or latent, and they very can very easily be summoned. So that has happened more than once, and it could easily um, become become worse. You know? In particular, since sectarian identities are identified with these political positions. And so these these like altercations become very very quickly charged, uh, highly charged, and then you have a potential for um, for things spinning out of control very quickly. And Heiko, Lebanon hosts what one and a half million Syrian refugees. I mean, uh, something like that. I mean, is how have the shortages affected relations between Lebanese and Syria and uh, those refugees? So so the figure that I prefer to use is, is closer to one million. Um, but never mind. I mean, it's a it's a huge number, and uh, so I mean, you you quoted uh, figures earlier about how many Lebanese live in poverty. Um, the UNHCR, I think, puts that figure for the Syrian refugees or maybe for refugees in general. I think at ninety eight percent. They're all destitute. They receive some very basic support, um, um, humanitarian support, uh, really to survive uh, for on a survival level. And that already um, creates uh, tensions with the Lebanese, who uh, who believe that the refugees are being helped while they themselves are starving, and um, relations have have gotten worse. It's quite clear. So there have been incidents of uh, of riots, attacks, of like some incident leading to a whole uh, Syrian refugee community being run out of a town. Uh, got some one guy. Did something that was related to a personal dispute, you know, and and then a thousand people were made homeless essentially, and, and violence happened in the process. So this happens increasingly. There is there is competition in the in the lowest bracket bracket of the labor market. Um, so the Syrians, of course, work in, in, in agriculture and, and building mostly, and those are um, parts of the labor market that Lebanese uh, in the past. Uh, um, would not would usually not work in because the pay was uh, 
too low and this, and and this, and also a social status question. Uh, now they're increasingly uh, pressured to do so, but then they go and find Syrians who have these jobs, you know, and and work for so extremely low salaries, you know, that it's basically for for the Lebanese to compete on salaries um, is is almost impossible. So aggression builds up there, and there is um, there is definitely uh, um, more tension. Heiko, we talked a bit earlier about the port explosion and its role in the buildup to the crisis. Can you tell us what's happening with the investigation? So an, an investigation has been going on, uh, uh, of course, for a while already. And uh, we now already have the, the second investigative judge. Um, the first one was removed um, because he wanted to summon uh, um, Politicians um, that are close to the, I mean, to the power elite. And now the second is, has been trying the same, and it's actually quite impressive. Uh, the, the Lebanese judiciary is is not generally uh, known as the most independent, uh, but you have uh, every now and then you have these very courageous uh, uh, judges that simply have high personal integrity. And uh, Judge Bittar seems to be one of those. <clears throat> and he has been summoning uh, people who clearly don't want to be summoned and who don't want to uh, like be held accountable. And they've been trying all kinds of uh, procedural tricks uh, or maneuvers um, through parliament and other ways to, uh, to uh, avoid uh, questioning uh, the and there have been attempts to remove Judge Bittar as well from his post, which so far have been unsuccessful. I mean, he has reportedly been threatened, even by Hezbollah, uh, uh, to uh, tone down, essentially. And it seems he's not intimidated. So concerning the, the, um, the, um, the actual investigation, um, from what I understand, uh, we, of course, we don't know everything that, that Judge Bittar has been doing exactly in details. I mean, uh, but the impression is that um, what the investigation will find uh, is um, proof of uh, gross and uh, perhaps criminal negligence and incompetence. And, and that is something that uh, clearly uh, some people want to avoid. So... Heiko, we've talked a little bit about Hezbollah already. Obviously, Hezbollah very close ties to to Iran and to the Syrian government. But could you say a word or two about the sort of international politics of Lebanon more broadly and how the economic crisis has played into that? I mean, other parts of the Lebanese political elite have close ties to the Gulf monarchies. Others have closer ties to, to the West. How has that evolved over this crisis? So essentially, I would say um, the... Um this, this crisis has emerged and evolved um, without too much of a role to for these external players, right? So the crisis itself is uh, is mostly homemade. The Western external actors have tired of the Lebanese elite and its inability or unwillingness uh, to reform and, and the, of the fact that whatever money you pump into Lebanon just uh, dissipates uh, without without too much effect. So that's that's the one the one side of it. I mean, they're still offering that aid or that that assistance, but uh, the Lebanese have to deliver uh, now before they get the money, and it doesn't look like they can. So uh, so that's one part of it. And um, now concerning the other side, uh, 
I mean, Iran, of course, has not too much to offer in, uh, in terms of economic support, um, uh, unlike the US or, the, or Europe, or the Gulf, indeed, could. Um, but Hezbollah has, this, has pursued this narrative or reiterated this narrative uh, throughout the crisis yeah, that this is uh, a US siege and this is economic warfare and all of that. And it has become more vocal about that. And it has proposed an alternative uh, for Lebanon to turn east, to uh, cooperate closer with Syria, Iraq, uh, Iran, China. And, and now with the, uh, the oil, the Hezbollah now at this point, when the energy crisis has, uh, has become uh, really crippling, has started to import oil from Iran uh, on its own account uh, in uh, flaunting U.S. sanctions and um, and the message, it's mostly about a political message, of course, is there is an alternative. Uh, now, uh, I don't think that this is necessarily a credible alternative, but it it makes an impression in those parts of the population that uh, that do support Hezbollah already, and it helps them uh, to basically um, avoid uh, uh, being blamed uh, for the crisis uh, in their own constituency. Not completely, but it helps in uh, in buffering against uh, attacks and criticism that says, "Well, you were you were involved in all this mess. Uh, uh, you have been in the government as well. What did you do? You know, why did you, why did you let it come to that?" Um, the Gulf countries finally um, apparently have uh, mostly have given up on Lebanon, so nothing is coming from there from there either. There's one political party that still receives money from the Gulf and a few players here and there. But largely, Saudi Arabia, which is what what has called the, what is calling the shots in the Gulf, uh, does not want to go n- near the Lebanese file anymore. Um, there may be personal uh, issues uh, involved between Mohammed ben, uh, ben, ben Salman and and Hariri in particular. But in general, it's I think it's also fair to to think that um, as long as Hezbollah has this uh, strong position within the Lebanese. Uh, power system, uh, the Gulf would simply not not put in a single uh, dinar or dirham or whatever currency they have. So we have a new government in place. What are their immediate priorities for reform? And if I can just add to that question and ask, in all the discussions of Lebanon, there's this sense of you know, there must be reform, calling for reform. Can you also say a bit, what does reform mean in a context where, where the situation is so dire? Let's, let's start with the new government. So an important thing to, to note about the new government is that they only have uh, six to seven months at best, right? So elections are due in, in, in May. There's been talk to bring them forward even to March. Um, and so that, that would mean six months and not more. So uh, what can you do in six months? I mean, you know, negotiations with the IMF are typically time-consuming. And other, I mean, legislation in Lebanon has never been fast. You know? so, so what can you do? And, um, and the prime minister, the new prime minister, actually, um, like uh, 10 days ago, roughly, <clears throat> sat down in a, in a one-hour interview on uh, uh, Lebanese TV, television and and was quite clear about what he is trying to do and which is basically uh, he wants to uh, to chart a way to reform and by uh, negotiating with the IMF and apparently they have uh, 
They have formed a new negoti negotiating team. Yesterday was the news that negotiations have actually started. They really want to press ahead with negotiating with the IMF or rather reopening negotiations because there have been negotiations already and that, which, that failed uh, a year and a, and a half ago, roughly. So he wants to um, revisit and revise um, financial rescue plan that the uh, previous government has um, like worked out and then was uh, torpedoed by people uh, with economic interests and political clout who felt that their interests may suffer. So he wants to re re revisit that plan. And I think these are the most two most uh, biggest pillars of his strategy. And apart from addressing like the very immediate uh, like crisis symptoms, some of them, not addressing them, alleviating them, you know, like getting a bit more gas to the gas stations, getting a bit more electricity, uh, again, by, uh, by using money that he actually doesn't really have or that, that is, that is desperately needed uh, for, for any reform pact strategies. So he's trying to, uh, to, to plug some of those most, most damaging uh, holes or, or fix them, at, at least put some stop gaps in there. Uh, while negotiating the exit plan or the, the rescue plan with uh, the IMF. And then when come election, um, he hopes to have this plan ready so that uh, the basic, essentially the next government could then implement. And of course, that implies that the electorate, the Lebanese electorate, uh, has a say. So people can then vote and this new government would have the legitimacy to, uh, to implement whatever reforms. Um, so that's the plan that he has. I'm a bit skeptical of he can, if he can succeed. Um. So Heiko, what is your sense of the prospects for change right now? What are the prospects for reform in light of, of the story you've shared? So, uh, so I'm, I'm unfortunately um, I'm not very optimistic. The challenges to these plans are enormous. One thing is they need to revive the financial sector, right? You cannot have an, an economy without banks. You cannot have an economy without credit, right? And which all of now is not there. So they need to revive that sector. And that means you have to allocate these colossal losses that are, that are in the system. I mean, you have to do something about these zombie banks, you know, which who pretend that they have assets that don't exist. And, And that is going to uh, to affect the, the shareholders of the banks. And uh, it may have to mean that they're losing their banks. That's why the, um, the financial rescue plan uh, was, was sabotaged uh, last year, because simply bank owners in Lebanon are closely linked with the political elite. And they... Um, and the, um, And uh, they were able to exert enough pressure to, to shoot this down. Uh, the second point is um, we, you need to, to clean up the central bank of Lebanon. Until today, it's unclear how much money there even is in the central bank. It's unclear if the gold that the central bank supposedly possesses actually, is actually there. You know, the gold is $15 billion. The last time that this gold was counted was in 1996, right? So um, nobody knows if it's there. The political elite, since the beginning of the crisis, has stalled and delayed on the audit of the central bank. Um, 
Why is that so? Well, it, the suspicion is, of course, that they have something to hide and uh, that um, uh, auditing the central bank would pull skeletons out of clo closets that, uh, that would compromise uh, members of the political elite. And the third big obstacle is um, you um, in Lebanon, you have an enormously big public sector. It's like 350,000 people. It's uh, one-fourth of the active labor force. It's not it will not be possible to come up with any plan that brings the state back to financial, fiscal sustainability without shrinking the public sector. And you have to shrink it massively. And, and, and these 350,000 people, they're all voters. And with relatives and, and dependents, uh, they're much more than, than, than that. You know? So any politician uh, uh, who touches this file, it makes it it's a suicide mission. And so the bottom line of all of this is even the very basic steps to reach, to come to an IMF agreement that may then... Uh, open doors for more money. It's extremely unlikely that the political elite will do this because it essentially undermines their own interest. It uh, destroys the banks that many of them owns. It may ruin their political careers. It will destroy their voter base. Somebody in an international organization uh, told me, uh, said that to me in these, in so many words. Uh, for the political elite, adopting significant reforms would be political suicide. So, Heiko, traditionally there's, there's been this, this sort of argument in Lebanon that people were so scarred by this horrible war 30 years ago now that they will do everything possible to, to avoid anything similar uh, in, in the future. But does that still hold? I mean, how long before things boil over, whether it's sort of people on the streets or, or struggles between some of the factions that you described? So uh, that's a very good and difficult question. Um, so, I mean, one thing is, of course, that um, so the, the civil war ended in 1990, right? So that's 30 years. There's a, there's a, a whole generation uh, of people, of almost two generations by now, uh, that have no memory, no active memory of the war. Uh, so that's one thing. The prospects of things taking this turn again is another thing. I mean, a civil war, uh, of course, needs, um, I would say, uh, at least two uh, parties that fight it out, right? And right now we don't have that. We have one party, one party that has the capacity to wage war, and that is Hezbollah. We have other parties, uh, political forces that may have uh, some military capacity, um, but there's no realistic chance that these will uh, confront Hezbollah uh, at any point in the near future. Now, what we can have is gradual deterioration of state control. And you have the, the country uh, falling apart uh, into um, a mosaic of, uh, of areas that are controlled by these or that factions, you know. And then some of those may come to blows occasionally. Heiko, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I hope I didn't, I didn't present a too gloomy picture for the audience. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick. And thank you, as ever, to all our listeners. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive review or a rating. 
you have questions, comments, don't hesitate to get in touch and we'll hope you'll join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.